Don't want to work forever? Once you can cover your living expenses with passive income, your day job becomes optional and you reach financial independence. You then have complete control over your time, your money, and your life in general. Spark Rental founders Denny Suplee and Brian Davis, me, are here to help you build rental income, ditch your day job, and do what matters most to you. So on that note, let's jump into today's episode, which, like all of our episodes, was recorded live. Hey guys, Brian Davis here from Spark Rental. Super excited to have you with us today. And I am so excited to have Michael Kwan back with us. Michael joined us last year, so his face and voice might look familiar to you. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Great to be back. Absolutely. So Michael Kwan is the founder of FinanciallyAlert.com. He's the international best-selling author of The Fire Planner. And uh, you guys know Fire, of course, financial independence, retire early. Uh, Michael you know, has firsthand experience with this. Michael retired at 36. He has since gone on to become a, a podcaster, a conference speaker, uh, a mastermind coach. Michael, let's just rewind for a second. For anyone who didn't hear that episode with you last time around, you know, tell us about your days as an entrepreneur and how that led into you retiring at the the ripe age of 36. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. So I'll just give the quickest story since you know this is kind of recap. But what happened was just out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to work for a tech company and this was during the dot-com boom. So things okay. were great. They were throwing money at all these companies like eBay and Amazon. And so things were great. I, I exited school right at the right time. And so I was super excited, you know, it's about a year and a half into my school. And then unfortunately, 9-11 happened. And mm -hmm. so that literally was the catalyst to literally kind of putting the brakes on the economy, the dot-com boom, all of a sudden turned into the dot-com gloom. And, right. you know, companies basically started going under. So I was at my company and they started laying people off left and right. And that was, you know, unfortunate, but it was a catalyst for me to actually start my own business. And so I ultimately started my own IT consulting business with a couple of friends. And so we went out, didn't know what we were doing. We were just running around with our heads cut off. But over time, you do anything long enough and you get better at it. And so we were able to stay within the game for a good 10 years or so. And so over that time, we were able to expand out into the Chicago area. I was based in San Diego, and that's where we were headquartered. And, uh, you know, after 10 years or so, we decided that we wanted to kind of do something different. So we ended up selling the company to a private equity company out of New York City um, that was doing more of a national thing. So that was really the uh, catalyst to allowing me to pull out some of the equity from that company, but then also taking the equity and put it into cash flowing real estate. There you and go. So, uh, you know, I know your audience is interested in the real estate. And so that's kind of where my journey with real estate investing started was actually selling the company, taking some of the equity. And then I was working for the new company for about a year and a half. And during that year and a half, I was really focused on trying to buy some properties in Las Vegas, um, Nevada. And were you living at Vegas in Vegas at the time? or? You, yeah, you no, I wasn't living in Las Vegas. Actually, I live in San Diego. And the reason why I went out to Las Vegas is because California, it's you know a lot harder to find cash flowing properties. Sure. But in Las Vegas, there's a whole bunch at the time. And to be honest, though, I was actually studying real estate investing even before I sold my company. So I was really interested in it. I knew it was a great vehicle for wealth. I had some uncles that had done that over um, you know, many decades, and I saw how successful they were with that. And so what happened was that I just started trying to figure it out. But during that time, this was around 2005, 2007, 2008. And what happened was 
the cash flow wasn't there because at the time um, things were getting pumped up and you know everything leading up to 2008 the prices were overinflated so i didn't buy anything i was just kind of waiting and i was like these numbers don't make sense these numbers don't make sense um but when it finally came to 2008 and everything crashed then i was like ooh this is interesting right it so finally it, makes sense finally makes sense so yeah I had, to, I had to wait a little while but i started investing in 2010 through 2012 was kind of the window great so, time to invest you know it was it was fortunate but yeah i did catch it at the right time and so that's again a great reason real estate is a much slower cycle. So we can kind of see some of these opportunities creeping in. Yeah. Well, you know, I wish, I wish I could say that I did most of my investing in 2010, 2012. I did most of mine and, or a lot of mine in 2006 to 2008. <laughs> so but you learned a lot, right? <laughs> oh, I learned a lot, uh, the hard way, the expensive way. So I understand that you too learned some expensive lessons early on. So let's talk about some of those early rental properties that you bought and what went right, what went wrong, uh, and, and some of those lessons that maybe audience members can learn your lessons the easy way rather than the expensive way. Exactly. Well, first and foremost, there's a couple of mistakes. The biggest one was that I was waiting so long. I was like in analysis paralysis where you're just really running the numbers and you're like, I didn't really want to pull a trigger. I didn't want to make an offer. I was so scared to just even make an offer. And I think it's silly now, but you know, as a young investor, right, you don't know, right? And you think if you make an offer, you're like obligated to buy this property and stuff, right? And so you don't know what you don't know. But in hindsight, I would really wish that I had just, you know, gone out and take some more baby steps and taken action, making more offers, making more offers, things like that, just to get and get feedback. But finally in 2010, this is well after, you know, kind of running numbers after probably three, even maybe four years before I made my first offer. I finally made my first offer, didn't get accepted, made another one, another one, another one, another one. And then I found this really great property. It was a three bedroom, two bath in Las Vegas in the suburbs. And I looked at the cash flow numbers. It was going to cash flow maybe like $300 a month or something. It was maybe $120,000 or something like that. And I was like, you know what? Great. I finally found the exact property that I wanted. You know, I would have to put up maybe 25 grand, maybe a little rehab, but all right, cool. And this is going to cash flow. I'm like, this makes sense. It finally makes sense. So I got all excited. You know, I flew over to Las Vegas just to kind of check out the neighborhood and uh, made the offer. And lo and behold, this is the first one that I actually was accepted. I was like, so excited. I'm like, all right, let's get this deal done. And so I thought I would be really uh, intelligent. I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to just say this is going to be my second home. And, and I was, I was going to use it for like a week and then turn it into a, turn it into a rental so that I could get <laughs> access to the second home interest rates, right. To get a lower interest rate. And uh, so I did exactly that. I, I, you know, closed on it as a second home and uh, you know, I looked on the listings and, you know, people were putting it out there on listings. And so I was like, all right, I had it. I spent like a weekend in there and then I was like, all right, time to convert it. Right. Turn it into a rental. And as I went to do that, I actually started looking on line again and I, I put my listing up. All of a sudden, though, I get this letter from the HOA saying, hey, you can't list your property. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's other listings here. Um, but then what I noticed was like those listings that went back up quickly got taken down. Mm. And I was like, what the heck's going on here? So they're like, no, you cannot rent this house because it's in an HOA community that excludes rentals unless it's your mom or a direct blood relative, wow, like a sister or a brother. And I'm like, 
no, this can't be. And it's like, oh, and it said literally written into the HOAs for the period of 99 years <laughs> from the point. So I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I literally went and talked to, I don't know how many different real estate attorneys, probably one, two, three, maybe four different real estate attorneys. And they're all like, they're like, I've never seen this. However, it's pretty clear that you're not able to rent. And so this second home that I purchased ultimately did become a second home for quite oh, some no. time <laughs> because I could not rent it out. So my first income property had zero income. Um, so Brian, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good story now, but at the time I was just like, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, what am I going to do? This is, this is horrible. Now, the good part of the story is that even though I was like losing money because I was paying the mortgage, you know, the insurance and everything and the taxes over the next couple of years while I held it, um, the good news is because I did buy it in 2010. By 2012, I was able to sell it, you know, sell it off and then get all of my money that I had basically paid into it over time because it came right. back a little bit and I was able to, you know, get my <laughs> equity back out of it more or less as a break even. And, uh, the nice thing is that there was a house literally across the street, literally maybe like a block or two across the street in a different community, completely different. Uh, but the numbers were exactly the same. And uh, I quickly snapped up that property and uh, actually still hold that property to this day. And that one okay. was like maybe $120,000 or something. And it's, yeah, you know, it's appreciated significantly over the last like decade or so. Yeah. You know, I think most uh, rental investors have stories like that, um, you know, where it may not have been an HOA, but there, you know, there, there was some, you know, horrible miscalculation that only became <laughs> clear after you've signed on the dotted line. Um, yeah. I mean, those, those are, it's a terrible feeling when your gut just drops, <laughs> drops to the it's floor. Like your gut, it's like, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, and then you, so you bought a few of these investment properties um, before retiring and, and um, you bought a, you know, a, a few of these to help you well, retire, right? To help cover your, some of your, mm -hmm. your living expenses in retirement. So t tell us about that. Yeah. So that was primarily the plan was to um, use the cash flow from those properties to, you know, essentially take care of my basic expenses and whatnot. And, um, you know, I also had a real estate portfolio, sorry, not a real estate portfolio, but an equities portfolio. So stocks and bonds that I was like building up over time while I was building my company. And even while I was back at my first job ever, you know, I was just kind of putting money into Roth IRAs, um, yeah. 401ks, getting matches and things like that. So I was pretty diligent about doing that. And the nice thing was that it was also building over time. And then so I was earning some dividend income from that. So combined with that and then the real estate, uh, it gave me the ability to, you know, essentially step out and, you know, do the whole early retirement thing. Although, admittedly, I didn't know at the time if it was going to work. Um, fortunately, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, it's it's been fine. And, you know, I hit some nice bull markets as well. Well, that that is true. Uh, your your timing was pretty good with the, the longest bull market in history <laughs> right? you know, over the, the 20 teens. Um so post post retirement, so you actually stopped investing in single family rentals, you know, active real estate investing, and you started doing some passive real estate investing. You know, tell us about that. Yeah, great question. So, yeah, I love the single family homes. Actually, that was you know, it had some incredible returns, great cash flow. The challenge, however, was that it was um, 
you know, a little time consuming. Oh, sure. so part of what I did once I retired early was I was taking care of my daughter. She was only one at the time. And so, of course, you know, I wanted to be very present for her. And so it's not like I was going to be able to kind of just fly out and, you know, take a look at places or really be hands on looking at new properties. And so I was like, you know, let me check out these syndications or at the time there was crowdfunding deals that that I could go after. And so I started focusing on that and, you know, that I could do while she's taking her nap or whatever, very passive. And so, yeah, I've been very fortunate over the last 10 years. I've probably done, you know, a good dozen or plus, um, you know, syndications or crowdfunding type of deals where I'm a silent partner, essentially. Right. And I think, you know, part of the process is just really making sure that you find the right operators. Right. And ensuring that, you know, the deal looks good from your end before you kind of throw your money in. I think the temptation a lot of times is like, you know, let me just throw my money in and, and trust you know, whoever the operator is. But unfortunately in the space, there's, there's good ones and there's bad ones, as you know, Brian, right? Oh, sure. And so, um, you know, it can really put a dent in your portfolio if you, you know, get a bad one in the mix, so to speak. And knock on wood, I got very lucky and I, and I was able to exit all of mine for, um, for some, some pretty decent returns. Um, but that's not to say you're not going to encounter those. And I just got lucky, right? But if you do a dozen, right, and maybe you have two bad ones, then still the 10 should, you know, cover the two and you should still do okay. So um, it was it was something that, you know, definitely worked at the time. And uh, yeah, I'm still looking at actively looking at, you know, syndication deals, although at the current environment, um, you know, I'm kind of waiting on the sidelines a little bit, just kind of seeing what happens with the, uh, the interest rates and some of the uh, operators that maybe have overextended themselves with the uh, hard money and now they can't you know, recapitalize and <laughs> into this new uh, interest rate environment. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's so much that you just said there that I want to dig into. Um, so first of all, I, I love what you said about, um, you know, how if you, if you do a dozen of these, um, you know, one or maybe two might underperform, one or two might overperform, most will probably perform as projected. Uh, and it becomes just sort of a, a long-term average. Um, so we, we do a, a real estate investment club where every single month we invest in one of these syndication deals and our members can pool their money to invest in these. Um, because like you said, one of the the downsides or the, or the, the added risks with syndications is the high minimum investment. Uh, it's usually 50 to hundred grand. Uh, and that's scary for people, right? So if you, if you just have your money in one of these, you know, it, it's easy to lay awake at night, you know, chewing on your fingernails, uh, worrying about how that one is going to perform. Uh, but if you spread your money over a dozen of these, two dozen of these, three dozen of these, um, then it just becomes about the, the average numbers. Uh, you don't have to sit awake, you know, lie awake at night worrying about one individual deal. Uh, it just becomes numbers on a page. And uh, so I, I, I definitely appreciate where you're coming from there. Um, you know, as far as the uh the 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 risks and the interest rates uh i actually think that that risk was bigger two years ago or or you know a year and a half ago um you know when people were were, were not worrying about that risk right and they were so they were buying these variable rate uh loans or yeah. taking out these variable rate loans and just figured that oh low interest rates will be here forever yeah. <laughs> right um <laughs> And they didn't buy a rate cap. Um, now, 
all the operators know that they have <laughs> that they need to buy a rate cap, right? So so they they remove that element of risk from the equation, or at least they they manage that risk, uh, and they have contingency plans in place, like a like a three plus one plus one loan, where it's a, a three year loan, but it's extendable by one year and then extendable by another year if you have to. Um, you know, again, with an interest cap, interest rate cap in place in most cases. So I actually think that risk, like never everyone's talking about that risk now and worrying about it now. That was actually something we all should have been worrying about a year and a half ago or two years ago. Now, actually, I think that risk is much lower since everyone's taking that into account. Um, but I certainly understand where you're coming from. <laughs> uh, there, there have been a, a lot of uh, syndicators who have had to make capital calls over the last year because mm -hmm. their variable rate loan shot through the roof on interest and suddenly they were cash flow negative or at least um, you know it, it, it started digging into their their cash reserves so they had to you know go back to investors with their palms out uh, so you know with all that being said how do you go about vetting sponsors to invest with yeah that's a great question um, and to that end Brian yeah you're exactly right it was the operators like you know two three years ago that now yeah when the variables coming up this is the time when they're like oh shoot like right. I didn't account for these crazy interest rates that we're seeing now and they can't recapitalize. Um, but, you know, I think for me, the way that I typically go out and I vet, you know, sponsors and operators is that I want to kind of understand how their performance is over time. But more importantly is I want to understand the fundamentals of the deal. Right. So every syndications, you know, set up a little bit differently. Right. And how they structure it how they pay out the investors, how they compensate, you know, the different people bringing in capital or the operators and managers, however, you know, it may be. Um, and if it's a sound business plan and I'm, you know, I believe in the overall general trend of a market, then I'll like, okay, that makes sense. Let's, let's do it. Other times, you know, I will take into account other investor friends, maybe that, you know, they say, Hey, I vouch for this person or this, you know, operator. So there's an element of that where it's just relationship based, right? Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, it comes down to the dollars and cents and the numbers. And sometimes it does take a little bit longer to vet some things. And I will say that there were times I'm going to say that, you know, I wasn't perfect. I again, I fully admit that there's times that I got lucky where maybe I jumped in too soon, and um, you know, just got lucky because they were able to perform. But it's but I didn't do the due diligence that I maybe should have done. For me, it's like, you know, if I see someone that's done a good job before, then of course I'm going to be much more likely to go invest with them again. Yeah. And, you know, when we, when we look at sponsors and, and these deals that we review every month, um, we want to see sponsors that have conservative underwriting, right? Yeah. Um, you know, exactly. Do they have you know lots of different contingency plans in place? Uh, for example, do they have a rate cap <laughs> like we just talked about? <laughs> uh, but you know, also you know, do they do a sensitivity analysis where they where they showcase you know here are the returns at at different cap rates, at different exit cap rates, right? Here are the returns you know at different uh, rent annual rent raise uh, scenarios, um, and you know in the in the nightmare scenario in like the the worst case cap exit cap rate and worst case you know rent raise scenario are they still making money even if or you know even if it's breaking yeah. even uh you know is that the case in in the nightmare scenario um you know and of course you want to make sure that you actually think that that is an accurate nightmare scenario and then they're not <laughs> they're not being <laughs> too uh too generous with with those those bad case scenarios um 
but yeah, I mean, yeah, so I'm with you 100% about uh, vetting the sponsors carefully, vetting the deals carefully, looking for that conservative underwriting, uh, and obviously looking for a track record of success because uh, nothing makes you feel more comfortable investing with someone than you know if you can see they've done dozens of deals and this is how they've all worked out. Um, and you know, if, even if they had one or two that lost money, hopefully those were at the very beginning of their of their career. It hasn't <laughs> happened since. You know, we all make mistakes. You've like, like you talked about earlier. You know, you've made mistakes. I've I've made plenty of my own investing <laughs> mistakes. I would like to think that they were at the beginning of my real estate investing career. But <laughs> yeah, but so, you know, one other thing quickly, Brian. Yeah, is that yeah, I think yeah. Part of it is also as an investor, right? Put yourself in the in the shoes of the sponsor or the operator, right? And say, this is my own deal. And if it was just completely your own deal, you didn't have any other money except your own, would you do the deal, right? And does it make sense? And as well, does the long-term macro trends make sense? Because again, a lot of times with real estate, that's a great thing about real estate. It's a slower cycle. So we can kind of see and we can anticipate where the puck is going to be. Um, even like you said, Brian, you know, even with the interest rates, right? People could have seen this, but they were so caught up and they got really greedy, right? Because they're like, oh, these low interest rates are never going to go away. Um, but if you look down the road, you could see this coming. I mean, it was no secret that, you know, COVID, like we gave away like trillions of dollars, right? Trillions. Something's going to have to basically change and, you know, they're going to have to come time to call, you know, come call due. And, and, and that's what happened, right? You know, of course. And if you're looking ahead, you know, I think like five years or so, I think that's a nice kind of place to at least look forward and ahead. Um, and if you're able to do that, then I think you can position yourself some with some great opportunities. And um, I feel like you get luckier in that sense when you, when you look further down the line. Yeah, no question. And, you know, what you just said there about, you know, if it, how would sponsors be behaving if it was all their own money? Um, that's one of the things that we look for in deals as well. And, and when we're vetting sponsors is how much, skin do they have in the game with these deals and, mm -hmm. you know, in their typical deals. Um, and, you know, the more of their own personal money that's, that's getting plowed into these deals, then you know, the more comfortable I feel putting my money into these deals each month. Um, and of course, you know, us proposing these deals to, to our club members. So, uh, so Michael, you have become involved recently in real estate investing masterminds and other types of masterminds. So, you know, tell us about what you're working on these days. Yeah. So, um, you guys actually just had uh, Dustin Heiner on somewhat recently, I think, on the show, right? We did. Yeah, a great so, conversation. You know, Dustin that. Heiner is a very active real estate investor and educator. And so actually, Dustin and I, we met at a conference called FinCon. And uh, we actually became pretty good friends back in 2018. And so we started up what was called, you know, it's called a private mastermind. You know, so essentially, there's four guys. And so we keep in touch, you know, every single month. And we kind of, you know, see how, what we're doing in each other's businesses, personal life and whatnot. And so, you know, Dustin, like I'm always asking him questions about real estate. Um, he might be asking me stuff about tech or whatever yeah. it may be, AI. And uh, and so he actually ended up starting up a conference called the Real Estate Wealth Builders um, Conference. And so, you know, he wanted me to come out there and speak to them about um, artificial intelligence and how it's going to affect real estate investing. And so I did that recently. Um, but what we also did is to create an environment um, for other people that wanted to be in a mastermind. So for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with what that is, you know, all a mastermind is, is a group of people that come together and you get this collective brain trust to work on things that 
you all have common goals. So for us, for example, we are all after, you know, building a life of financial freedom and also creating impact and taking care of our families. So that's how we're all united on that front. And so at his real estate wealth builders uh, conference, we're like, you know what, we should start up another mastermind for people that want to do real estate as a vehicle to build financial freedom. And so we basically created this real estate wealth builders mastermind. And uh, it's been great. You know, we, you, it's a, it's, it's a pretty elite thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's not, I wouldn't say it's cheap, but it's, uh, it makes you put skin in the game essentially so that, you know, you're paying attention and that you're coming, you, you feel like you're getting value into this. And so, um, yeah, I, I wanted to share that because it's, it's something that's been really important to me over the last 10 years, even after I retired early, you know, you still want to grow as an individual, you still want to be able to create impact, you still want to be able to do things. And so while I do some financial coaching, I share about, um, you know, real estate investing or different types of investing over time. It's really nice to have a sounding board. And um, Dustin and Adam and Tom, these guys in my mastermind group, you know, when I first came in, like they were doing some amazing things. Like, you know, Dustin was, you know, a great real estate investor. Um, Tom's great on the corporate side of things. Adam's a public speaker. And so you get into proximity of people that have these other skill sets that complement your own or are way above kind of where you're at. And then the nice thing is that you naturally upgrade your own standards. And so, for example, they were all published authors. They were all podcasters. They had all these cool things going on. I'm like, oh, that's cool. How'd you guys do that? How'd you do that? And without them pressuring me directly, I just kind of naturally was like, you know, that's cool. How did you do that? Right. And then somehow over the over the time that I've been with them, like things just happened. Like I started a podcast and my my biggest fear was public speaking. Um, but I started that and I, and, and I do that. And it's been like three and a half years now. Um, we're going to have Brian on. So that's going to be exciting <laughs> as well. Um, but other things, getting to write a book and getting a book deal with Simon & Schuster, you know, things like that, where I could go to the guys and say, hey, you know, I'm negotiating this or whatnot. They're like, oh, ask for this. Don't expect them to do that. This and that. And no different within real estate. Um, I came to Dustin one time. It's like, hey, I want to sell my property in San Diego um, because it makes sense. And I want to do it for sale by owner. Never done it before in my life, right? But guess what? Because he's my mastermind and I just pick his brain. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, just do this, 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 this. And, uh, you know, was able to sell, you know, save like, I don't know, fifteen to $20,000 in commissions, right? Just off the, um, the sale of the property. And so, again, putting yourself in proximity to other people of similar values, but also that are, I think beyond you where you're at at a certain level can really help you to elevate your game. And so whether or not you do it through a private peer mastermind um, that you know doesn't cost any money, or if you join one that's like a paid one like mine with the Wealth Builders Mastermind where everything's kind of done for you, you just kind of come to it um, and we help facilitate it. Either one of those is a great option to really, I think, move you forward um, in your real estate, financial freedom journey, whatever it may be. Anything that maybe you feel stuck with just having a, a backdrop of other individuals that have like values is an incredible tool to, to really help push you forward. No question. And, um, you know, I, I like what you said there about uh, getting into a room with people who are a couple steps ahead of you. Um, you know, there, there's, what's the saying that if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. You, you want to surround yourself by people who are, you know, one, two, three steps ahead of 
where you are, uh, but who are where you want to be, uh, because you can learn from them. And they're not so far ahead of you that they've forgotten what it's like to be where you are, right? <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, Michael, where can people learn more about you, learn more about uh, the mastermind that you just mentioned, the Real Estate Wealth Builders Mastermind? Uh, yeah, how can people connect with you? Yeah, if you'd like to reach and connect out, um, you can find me on the Mastermind uh, website. You can just go to wbmm.org. That's the, the website there. Also, you can find me on my personal blog site, financiallyalert.com. And uh, depending on when you listen to this, you might be able to catch me on Good Morning America in the next oh, wow. uh, couple of weeks. Yeah. So they just did a story on early retirement. And so they asked me to come in and uh, you know, answer a few questions. And I'm going to be featured with, I think, two other people. And uh, yeah, so maybe you'll maybe you'll catch me there. But yeah, reach out. I, you know, I definitely always reply back to people. I think it's important to, you know, at this point, really help other people to get on their journey and accelerate their journey and their path to financial freedom. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the money, right? It's about a quality of life that you can enjoy so that you can, I think, you know, use your God-given talents and create impact for other people. And if you're doing that and you're having fun and you're having fulfillment, then I can have it all, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, ultimately, money is a tool, right? It's a means to an yeah. end. Um, money is a renewable resource. Time is not, right? We all have a, a limited <laughs> amount yes, of time on this planet. Uh, but money gives you control over that time. Right. As, as you well know from personal experience, uh, you have completely taken back control of your time with money, right? I mean, by, by buying yourself financial independence. So I love it. Michael, every time we, we get together, we have such a fun conversation. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And we look forward to having you back again next year. Awesome. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, you're doing awesome things. And I'm so excited to check out the Real Estate Investment Club. Um, you guys are doing cool things at Spark Rental. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, guys, we will catch you next Tuesday. Uh, in the meantime, reach out, support at sparkrental.com. And you know, please rate, review if you enjoy these conversations. Go on uh, Stitcher or, or uh, iTunes and give us a shout out there. And in the meantime, we will catch you on the flip side. Bye now. Did you know we offer a free eight video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long but packed with information. Visit sparkrental.com slash learn for instant access. And please don't forget to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us, and we will catch you on the flip side.